We launched March 4th, and by May, I was in every single Whole Foods in Northern California as a mandated product. We were, you know, a case study for them as the number one functional brand on their set. On this episode, I talked with Caitlin Landsberg. She went from being a Silicon Valley marketing exec to founding a branded beverage company that she sold to the Sierra Nevada Brewing Company to founding a venture capital fund named for a line in a David Foster Wallace speech. She believes in B Corps, triple bottom line ventures, in the notion that startup entrepreneurs can create new products that are good for the planet. I'm Brett Waters. I've been in Silicon Valley my entire life, immersed in the world of entrepreneurship, innovation, and venture capital. I run a startup accelerator program named Fourthly. This is the Fourthly Podcast. So with me today is one of my favorite entrepreneurs. Caitlin, how are you this afternoon? I'm terrific. A little cold here, but I'm good. Yeah, definitely been a cold spell going on in Northern California. We're, yeah, but we're wimpy. I guess it's not too we cold are, that's so right. on a relative basis. That's right. My cousins in Minnesota would have no sympathy for us. Right. <laughs> so give us the, the brief background on yourself. Sure. Um, I would say that my through line throughout my career has been in brand and product marketing. Growing up here in the Bay Area, I had the opportunity to finish college and go right into high tech and started my first role in a, in a product communications role at Adobe Systems mm-hmm. and um, from there jumped ship to try my hand at my first startup and followed a, a peer of mine at Adobe into the mobile marketing space way back mm. when, when we were building mobile communities for artists and MMS mm. and texting MNF, yeah, all, yeah, yeah. The, all the rage. Right. And so I found myself getting in early and on a mobile marketing and technology building communities on that platform and that led to roles at mozilla firefox mm-hmm. um, and another couple of other failed startups where i earned a bunch of stripes in, in the brand and product marketing category and then landed a great role that was a perfect fit for, for me back in 2010 at strava which is a social fitness company i would not say startup but it's definitely a full-fledged company now you know 11 years later and um, was their first marketer, I think employee number 10 there, and got to take my love of endurance sports and running, building community, mobile platforms, and, and developing apps and scaling that at Strava for about four years. And that was a wonderful time in my career when I accidentally started a beer company. Oh, hey, okay, There's, that sounds like a story. <laughs> I had no idea that I was a beer aficionado. I was running so much. And of course, at the end of every workout or finish line, I was given a commemorative pint glass and a big old IPA. Mm. And I had a lot of opinions about what I was drinking all of a sudden. So I kept on joking that I was going to make the Gatorade of beers because things were too alcoholic or too heavy or too hoppy. I was uh, gluten-free at the time and running with a bunch of folks that had celiacs, Mm. recently diagnosed with with different types of, of autoimmune deficiencies and diseases. So here I was talking the talk, but not walking the walk. So um, yeah, you're not you're not supposed to be drinking beer if you're gluten intolerant, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and so I started brewing on the side and selling premium at Strava, and the two worlds collided. And I found myself um, trying to pitch, you know, a premium subscription model to brand partners, and they just wanted kegs for their their uh, races. So in mm. 2015, I left um, Strava to try my hand at becoming a 
a beer master and and starting a new new career in CPG. Gave myself six months. And on the other side of that, I built Sufferfest Beer Company for about eight years. Fully um, exited, I was acquired by Sierra Nevada in 2019. After that, I um, really got to go back to sort of my interests and passions when I finally had some time to do do more good in the world. And I think in, in the beer industry specifically, I got to see firsthand just the massive amounts of waste and water usage within beverage and also within um, single serve consumables. For and sure. so, and For at sure. Summerfest, we were a B Corp. And, and so yeah. I founded uh, This Is Water, which is a foundation and also an investment fund where we focus on other B Corps and other mission-driven startups and in certain areas and certain categories that are are doing more good for the world and and so that's what i'm doing right now investing more professionally more formally and and also advising other crazy beverage founders okay i have so many questions um (laughs) but let's start with the founding of the beer company because so i often say that you know many great startups begin with a founder who notices a problem we're solving Right. Mm-hmm. And so it sounds like this is a pretty good example of that. And that you, you were an athlete and you created a product for yourself, kind of, it sounds like at first. Right. And then fortunately enough, that turned out to be a persona that there was more than one of, there's more than just more than one Caitlin. There were a whole bunch of people out there that were interested in a, in a beer like this. I think it's also interesting kind of the guerrilla marketing that you did at first. In other words, showing up with, showing up at races with the product and talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I use the word accidental quite purposefully. You know, I think the reason why I think it happened was it because it was an accident. I was being absolutely self-referential. And I think if yeah, I went yeah. out and decided I wanted to start a company and I got to think of an idea and here it is, I don't think it would have happened clearly. Right. It was very organic and it was, you know, highly motivated by my my own really selfish interests. So that was, I think, a key step to the whole formula. From there, you know, the founding of it, I would say that it was Caitlin's Fun Club. I, I did, stakes weren't high for me. I was bootstrapping this thing and it was a, a passion of mine and it was really focused on my friends and family. But a lot of these stories that we hear and all these case studies of successful businesses, the timing is is right. And sometimes that's miraculous. But what happened with me was I was a female founder in a category that was suddenly shifting to better for you, to mm-hmm. more equitable, um, diverse figureheads, and with true authenticity around being a part of a community that I was trying to serve. So Mm -hmm. I had this trifecta of timing and real recognizes real and, and also the naivete of not knowing what I didn't know, (laughs) honestly, Mm -hmm. to be in a, and to be in beverage alcohol and the three tier system and all of the red tape that is involved. I'm sure if I knew what was in store for me, I probably wouldn't have done it. Yeah. Um, And I went into the, an, an, a really, old category that had overlooked a huge community of people and uh, treated it like a high-tech startup, not a beer company or a, you know an old-school beverage brand. And I think that right. was the key to us, my success. And then, of course, being a runner myself, yeah, I got the privilege and the opportunity to bring my own kegs to my own races mm-hmm. and my own labeled 
beer cans and I, I I literally would just watch and sit back and see what people chose, what their decision-making factors were. And as soon as they chose my brand, I'd go right up to them and say, hey, I'm Caitlin. I saw you at mile 20. Why did you pick that beer? So being there, mm-hmm. that primary uh, yeah. research moment was just pivotal to the authenticity, the pace, and the ability to build a story immediately and something that was tried and true pretty quickly. Within six months, we had really, I mean, taken off, I say that with air quotes, because we were sort of accepted by every buyer. We were batting a thousand at every door that we would walk into and a fully mandated product and and, and large chain retailers within that first six months that I time boxed my, my proof of yeah. concept for. So was there a particular moment when you went, you know, holy shit, this could actually be a business? <sighs> yeah. It, it really could have happened in the first month, honestly. Yeah. I yeah. thought that I would go door to door with my cooler um, Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, and then Tuesdays and Thursdays, I'd put whatever beer I sold into my Prius and I would deliver them. And it would be me, myself, and I operation. And again, I, I, I mean it when I say I think I batted a thousand. Every buyer was looking for something gluten removed, which we were. Mm-hmm. They love the story around an athlete and a better for you version of an, uh, you know, re- reinvented liquid with a real authentic local story attached to it with our, again, with our B Corp mission too. It really just hit all these boxes in this moment that buyers were looking mm-hmm. for. And mm-hmm. um, again, within, you know, we launched March 4th. And by May, I was in every single Whole Foods in Northern wow. California as a mandated product. At that point, we were, you know, a case study for them as the number one functional brand on their set. And um, I had guaranteed revenue coming in um, once per month. So what, is, so what does mandated product mean in this context? Yeah. So at least with some chains in every region, it's different. You know, what I did was work my way up from the from the ground up. I didn't know there was any other way. I would go in directly <laughs> to a buyer um, mm-hmm. who was managing a, you know, a beer and cheese aisle at a, at a grocery store. And I would give the pitch in three minutes in my running shoes and try and get a, a sale right then and there on the spot. Buyers usually have autonomy over their aisles. But when you're mandated, you sort of get to leapfrog over the the door-to-door maneuvering and a regional decision maker now lets everyone know that these products are products that they are they are required to purchase hmm. um, every time they're out of stock and, and until further for, until further communication with the planogram and a set of where they are located Got so it. within those three months we had earned ourselves guaranteed um, shelf space. So the mandated product means that somebody higher up in the food chain through a, buy, a regional buyer has told all the individual stores that this is a product you need to carry. Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. So that's a pretty big deal. I love that you said three minute pitch because um, in the Stanford entrepreneurship course that I teach at the end of the quarter, the students each have to give a three minute pitch. Hmm. And of course, there's always, um, you know, there's always some engineer in the class who, who says, wow, my startup is so amazing. There's no way I could describe it in three minutes. I need 30 minutes to describe my startup. <laughs> and I laugh. And I tell him, if you can't sell it in three minutes, you ain't, gonna, you ain't gonna sell it in 30 minutes. And the other thing I love about the fact that you talked about the three minute pitch in the, uh, you know, in the store wearing your running clothes is that another thing I pontificate about is that most people think of a pitch 
as being a fundraising thing, right? If you say, if you say pitch, people think that that, that is something you do while you're fundraising. And, you know, I, I always, you know, pontificate about the fact that great entrepreneurs are pitching all the time. They're pitching for customers, they're pitching for partners, they're pitching for employees, they're, you know, they're pitching for, for new, uh, uh, new arrangements with the landlord, right? That, that, um, you know, a great entrepreneur is pitching all the time. And, and that ability to tell a crisp, clear and compelling story in three minutes is super, super important. So I love the visual of you in the supermarket talking to the buyer wearing your running clothes. You're here. Yeah, <laughs> I was really lucky. And these were the good old days. I would usher them back to the storage room and try to open up a can for them to actually drink it. And right. our, our emphasis was liquid to lips. And so we were always about trial, 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 trial. Yeah. So I also, you know, noticed you were talking about how, so obviously, uh, you know, consumer packaged goods, old-fashioned business, right? Beverages, uh, beer, these are businesses that have been around for a very long time. And for the most part, they're not located here in the Bay Area. Most, you know, most CPG companies are elsewhere. And so kind of what we think of as being Silicon Valley culture, Silicon Valley mindset, Silicon Valley um, startup methodology is usually not really well aligned with what Anheuser-Busch does. And so it was interesting that you said something about how you brought uh, you brought a high tech mindset to the beverage business or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'd, love, I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, and I don't know if it, it and it, I think it's case by case, but coming mm. off the heels of Strava, yes, yeah. it was a high tech company built on you know a mobile and web platform and quantified self and all that jazz. But really, mm-hmm. the the secret sauce in that brand and what I was you know really raised there to do and why I think Strava became so successful was we put all of our eggs in the brand building basket. Mm-hmm. It was a tour de force on community building. Yeah. Um, you know, we levered every every influencer, local hero, authentic athlete to proliferate word of mouth, which I believe is the number one referral you can get when building right. and scaling. And right. so when I say that, that is exactly what I emphasized at um, Sufferfest. And before going into fundraising so I could build, you know, fundraise for CapEx and build out a facility to mm-hmm. brew. I went mm-hmm. right to a contract brewer so I could bypass that part and go mm-hmm. right to, you know, the the consumer engagement to, to the brand building, to the place where I could storytell. Because what I immediately understood about CPG in particular and beer in particular is I, I wasn't inventing beer, clearly. It's a mm-hmm. very noisy, very mm-hmm. competitive category. Mm-hmm. Well, I was I was in an exercise of storytelling. What I needed to do was become beloved. I needed to become understood mm-hmm. and loved, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I needed to be the real deal. And so, for mm-hmm. me, that was showing up at races. That mm-hmm. was focusing my the, the money that I did raise on on people that could help me proliferate the brand story through word of mouth and in the most authentic way possible. And I think that was a lot different than I think the approach of many of, of my peers and competitive set at that time in, in the beer industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these days, um, you know, influencer marketing has become kind of a, a buzzword. Mm-hmm. But the concept has been around for a long time, mm-hmm. right? Long, be- long before TikTok, <laughs> uh, long before Instagram. It's always been important to, you know, find kind of the highly influential subset of your target market and 
you know, and then get your product into their hands. You know, I always tell my Stanford students that not all customers are created equal. And so, you know, figure out who the high value customers are mm -hmm. and try to fo focus on them at first, because then they will help you do the work mm -hmm. of, mar of marketing your product. Right. Absolutely. And I think also we were building something aspirational. So I think you do mm -hmm. need to, to focus at the top of the pyramid for that. And, and then your incremental circles grow from there. And we were really guided. I, Phil Knight, and I'm going to butcher this quote, but said, I don't care if a lot of people like me as long as enough people love me. And, mm, um, and, and I think yeah. we were unwavering in who our target was from day one yeah. um, and alienated communities because of that. And I think even investors were saying, you know, Sufferfest, gosh, that's a really aggressive term. And you kind of <laughs> have to be inside baseball to really get that or you, you want to <laughs> go that way. Yeah. And the answer was absolutely, because the people who understand it will help us lead this community and educate followers and build cachet yeah. around a community that you get to be in the know when you discover it. Um, and we had a really clear path in terms of who we were for and being truly serving them without trying to serve everyone. And when you do that, you, you don't, you miss everybody. Right. right? right. That, that is a hundred percent true. Right. So talk to me a little bit about your fundraising process. So what was it like pitching investors for this? You know, that, that was the scariest part, certainly. Yeah. I luckily didn't have family involved, but I did get pitched to some friends. And once, yeah. you're, once you have to see your friends again, you work, you, you work extra hard when you, <laughs> absolutely. Right. But again, luckily for me, and I mean, this is a real luxury. And I, I think I, I'm, I so appreciate the luxury that I had now being on the other side of the table as an investor. But my mm -hmm. proof of concept was validated really early on in my journey. Um, within, you know, I, I recognize that that first round of friends and family, that seed round, people were, were investing in me. They, they were. They didn't, when I said yep. eatery of beers, they all kind of rolled their eyes and, and recognized that I would work and I would die trying, but they were not probably expecting to see their money again. Yeah. However, within six months, I was able to really develop ongoing and consistent revenue channels. I had case studies at major chains on and off premise. I really was able to validate my brand super early in my journey. So within six months, I felt I had the data, the projections, the PL for the right path forward to go out to some more sophisticated investors in the CPG world um, that I felt I could, for lack of a better word, exploit. I, I really wanted to make sure I understood that money is hard to raise. However, if you think of it as a commodity, commodity with your seed and pre-seed rounds, I think it's so important that you are bringing people into your team and into your inner circle that can really, really either be your champion or really drive new partnerships and, and yeah, new levers yeah. for you. And so yeah, yeah. going to that next round of angels who were focused on CPG, they were able to help me unlock better rates for contract growing, better partnerships um, yeah. within bigger chain banners. Um, right, and it was right. all part of a new system. So right, um, right. So every everybody's money is the same color. Yes. And so all things being equal, you want to take money from people who can also help you in other ways. If you have luxury of being discerning, yeah. I would. Right. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. 
Um, and then I ended up raising a Series A literally in the delivery room with my first child. So <laughs> I, I didn't even Very tell nice. my lawyers that I was laboring because <laughs> I didn't want the deal to slow down because we were that close to running out of money. And as I say to every founder, rule number one, don't run out of money. Rule don't number two, don't forget rule number one. <laughs> <laughs> That is very, very solid advice. <laughs> so you had a baby and closed the Series A all at all at the same moment. Absolutely, yes. Very it was, nice. It was a wild ride. It's quite poetic. And then you you sold the company but kept the baby. Is that right? So, well, interestingly enough, I was presenting at a yes. conference and eight, seven months, six months pregnant at the time with my second child. <laughs> I was presenting at a conference down in LA and. Um, Happened to be presenting to my my future boss uh, Jeff Jeff White at Sierra Nevada, and I ended up selling Sufferfest really in his my son's first month of life. So both children get to have a, a little bit of a milestone story That's around awesome. the Sufferfest evolution. I love that. Yeah, I love that. And for somebody who's all about the brand story. That's uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> so we sold Cyberfest and uh, and then you decided it was time for the next chapter of your life, which is um, This Is Water. So tell us about that. Yeah, This Is Water is it. It lives in a very warm, soft place in my heart. The name's inspired by the name of a commencement speech that I had the privilege of listening to firsthand by David Foster Wallace when I was graduating um, Kenyon College in 2005. So now you know how old I am. So you were actually you were actually there. I was there. Oh, that's funny. I've read I've read that speech many times. Yes, that's pretty cool that you were actually there. I I would give it actually <laughs> to anyone I dated after that. Part of their homework was to read that speech. Very and nice. it comes in a handy little guidebook now that, that they publish posthumously for for oh, him. So I assume that means your husband passed the test. He did. He got the book. He read it on the first <laughs> night. And um, and he was actually the one who got me the beer making kit. So he really, he was the one wow. who planted the seed wow. in this whole story. And so he definitely got to got to marry me as his reward. Um, <laughs> and uh, this is water. the The commencement speech, in it succinctly, really is about um, the privilege of choice and being aware, aware of your surroundings, um, mm -hmm. and taking the compassionate heart and choosing the story that makes you a, a better person in terms of how you want to navigate this world. And it. It's always stuck with me. I always calm down with my this is water mantra mm. uh, whenever I get fired up about some of the injustices in this world. My husband and I decided that um, we would sort of dust off uh, the old um, the old portfolio. And um, he also runs a B Corp and I ran a B Corp with Sufferfest. Mm -hmm. And we were highly motivated about um, finding other like-minded founders and founding teams also within cpg ideally um also in other categories but certainly we felt like we had a lot of experience to, to share mm -hmm. within that category around um triple bottom line and, and doing better specifically within mm -hmm. packaging and supply chain mm -hmm. um we we just see so much of it and um my husband's on a, a plastic three by 2025 
um, mission with his business. And wow, that's only two years. Also, very focused on bioplastics and, mm-hmm. and how I can be adjacent to CPG because I do think there's so many broken parts yeah. of it. But you know, enable the consumer and help enable the shift and and mm-hmm. and unlocking some some great alternatives for us. So I think you described this is water as being part foundation and part investment fund. Yeah. Explain that. Yeah, it's dual pronged. So part part of um, our fund is designed to um, give to 501c3s within our charter, mm-hmm. and that's the foundation part. Um, mm-hmm. We focus on giving to organizations that are around sustainability and some health and health tech related issues. And then this is water. The venture fund focuses on supply chain, consumer enablement, and packaging, typically within CPG. Um, mm-hmm. And we love to hear from founders. So we ask anyone, come any, come all, who have a mission-driven business. We mm-hmm. are angel and seed funders. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, I think we're, we're, Stu and I obviously appreciate being at the ground floor we're very comfortable in that area. We've done it ourselves. And so we love to mm-hmm. be able to work with other founders really to 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 understand and help set up those building blocks. Because that is there's so much inertia and there's so much roadblocks and fear and, and hopefully we can all work together to overcome those. So it sounds like you're a proponent of the B Corp idea. Because you said that Sufferfest was a B Corp and your husband's company is a B Corp and kind of Sounds like you have a preference for those in terms of startups you invest in. So, you know, I'm always, you know, when students ask me, uh, you know, should I create a B Corp? I'm always unsure, you know, kind of what advice to give them on that. So give us your, give us your pitch on why, why you like that structure. I, well, I like it. And I wouldn't say that they're the, it's the, the end all be all to, to doing good in business and having a triple Mm -hmm. bottom line model. However, Mm -hmm. I do find them to be probably the most mature and and structured and clear for a, a young company to get started building right. accountability at the foundation. And I think yeah. accountability is really the word that, that I would use in terms of how you hire, how your employees are are benefiting from being part of your venture and journey, and, and obviously the impact that you're having on your community and, and your community at large. So I think having, I would say, absolutely. I think it gives you good hygiene and discipline from day right. one. Right. Cause it's kind of baked in, it's kind of baked into your founding documents. Absolutely. I think, yeah. it, I think, yeah. it, I think it, some, it, you, you definitely cross um, threshold where it probably doesn't make any more sense if you are too large at, to, to kind of go back. I think this is a really a decision that you make from the beginning. It impacts even how your board and investment body is made up. And so you really yeah. want to have the right people around you that support this initiative because it's not always the cheapest route to go. Right. I would say commercially from a consumer standpoint, I think it's one of the other more recognizable certification and accreditation units right. out there. And right. Looking at it from that lens, being a B Corp allowed us to immediately work with other B Corps, build brand partnerships with larger brands that we could ride on their coattails and gain awareness around. And in terms of reasons to believe, especially with consumer, you know, more and more we are finding, I found that our target consumer does vote with their dollars. Mm -hmm. And having a real clear 
position on where you stand around the fundamentals of how your business is made up, I think is important to a consumer who is making a decision about your product for the first time. So it it lends itself very successfully and well in that regard as well. The way lawyers have explained this to me is that under the law, a corporation has fiduciary responsibility to maximize return for shareholders, right? And so theoretically, investor or shareholder can sue you saying, uh, your profits this year weren't as good as they could have been because you made a bunch of sustainable choices and I didn't invest in your company to have you make me sustainable choices. I invest in your company to have you maximize the return on my investment. Um, and that the, the B Corp, you know, part of the advantage of the B Corp is it gives you cover. You know, if somebody invests in your company and they're a shareholder that, you know, you can say, no, this is, you know, this is what you bought into. You know that this is what you bought into. <laughs> yeah, setting expectations from right. from the ground level. Mm-hmm. Right. And there are plenty of examples today of uh, B Corps that have gone on to great success. So right. it's not, it's not, it's not a fringe movement anymore. It's very much a, a well-known, well-accepted right. yeah, actually, stru- structure. At Sierra Nevada, they did a, a case study and, and found that our, our six pack, could produce one to two dollars more per unit based yeah. on our B Corp certification. So yeah. well, just be, just because of the B Corp certification. Yeah. Yeah. And of course there's lots and lots of evidence these days that consumers, all things being equal, consumers will choose the product that they associate with, you know, making the world a better place in some way. That all things being equal that that, that you know, in something like eighty percent of the time that that will influence a consumer's decision in Absolutely. terms of which and product ideally it's backed so. up with real metrics and real yes <laughs> yes that's right not just, that's right yeah. not just a bunch of not just a bunch of greenwashing exactly caitlin last question so first of all thanks again for your time um and i know you're you're busy with not only with everything else you're doing but you're also a busy mom so you know the fact i love i love the fact that part of your entrepreneur story is that you had two kids along the way mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know as you look forward to 2023 and beyond with this is water and the kinds of investment opportunities you're pursuing kind of what do you what do you see as trend lines that you think are worth paying attention to well the world has taken a big turn um and it will right itself again and turn again but for now you know, a, a direct-to-consumer channel is a very expensive way to build community, yep. and supply chain is is very unreliable and very expensive, especially for those just getting off the ground. Mm-hmm. I love consumer enablement that is in software for those reasons. I think adjacent, you know, category adjacent solves in the CPG category um, that can still remain in the cloud are, are really um, viable options right now and most affordable, mm-hmm. certainly, um, mm-hmm. from an investment standpoint. But, you know, trends in the beverage category, obviously that's a whole different conversation, but the unfinished business that I had at Sufferfest was not alcoholic. Our program got the kibosh when we were acquired. Um, mm-hmm. but I now find myself advising a lot of brands in the NA space and it's a, uh, mm-hmm a clear mm-hmm. and, and natural progression in this world where alcohol yep. follows not alcohol and yep. Um, yep. and everyone is shifting towards that better for you lifestyle. So that's great to see, I think, in the world and destigmatizing NA beer is really important, I think, to to everyone's mm-hmm. well health and, and, and mental wellness as well. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Again, I think in that consumer pa- packaged goods category, I'm obviously very bullish around alternative um components within uh, retail, within fashion, within packaging. I think that that these are 
bioplastics alone is a trillion dollar business. There's going to be a lot of winners. And we're getting into, into the place in the nascency where really fantastic brands are just coming to market and are priced and stress tested very similarly to petroleum based products. So we're right there. I think mm. it's going to be a huge, huge topic. And I'm really excited to be a part of that. You think packaging waste is actually an issue that we can that we can fix or at least make a dent in? I think, I mean, I think we can. I'm drinking the Kool-Aid at least, um, yeah, but I yeah. actually think we can. I think we can do that specifically within the supply chain right now. I mean, mm-hmm. we're seeing so much waste from all these other categories going in to becoming new pe- resins and pellets um, that were right. petroleum-based to make so many molds for just limitless categories from from building and, and horticulture all the way to, to food and packaging. Um, and, and we're seeing some real big front runners coming out and uh, from all around the world. It feels like an arms race to me, but I'm obviously a little bit more involved in it. So I'm, I'm looking at that category really closely, and I think that we can make it a huge dent there. So final, final question. So when you think about yourself at the beginning of your entrepreneur journey uh, with Sufferfest, so you're a runner, you're bringing your homemade beers to events, you know, what do you know now that you wish you had known then that you could pass on to new founders? Um, I would savor the moment a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was in a really special time and I think I was just one big stress ball. Yeah. It's really hard to do that. Understood. Easier said than done. But um, I would delegate more and know that, you know, the, the more I think a leader can let go, the greater the leader can be. Um, yeah. And and I think that would be a, a, some some words of wisdom that I would pass on. And another one would be believe in yourself. If you're the founder, if you're the CEO, you know this business better than anyone else. And just because mm-hmm. someone's writing a big check and really fancy doesn't mean they know more than you. And I think going inward and reminding yourself always that you actually are the reason why your business exists is a good a good daily affirmation. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that uh, sometimes you know bringing in too many grownups in the room takes away from all the the child's mm-hmm. play fun that you can have. Yeah. So enjoy the moment, be fully present, believe in yourself and believe that you're in some respects, your, you know, your inexperience, the fact that you're a neophyte to this is part of the advantage that you bring. It's part, of your, part, it's part of your competitive differentiator is that you don't know how this business has always been done. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah well, that's great. Caitlin, thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This has been the Fourthly Podcast. If you could spare a moment to share and review this show, it really makes a difference for us. You can find out more at fourthly.com and you can reach me anytime at brett at fourthly.com. Until next time, I'm Brett Waters. Thanks so much for listening.